This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Um, journalist Adele Ferguson's investigations helped lead a reluctant government to call the recent Royal Commission into the banking and financial services sector. Her new book, Banking Bad, details the Royal Commission but also the decades preceding the recent banking scandals. The book's dedicated to those who choose not to stay silent. Adele this year was recognised with an AO for her services to journalism and thanks so much for coming into Triple R, Adele. My pleasure. And I wanted to start with your dedication to those who choose not to stay silent as it's also where you end the book highlighting that truth-telling is increasingly dangerous in Australia. How important were whistleblowers to your reporting on the banks and ultimately the calling of the recent Royal Commission? Oh, integral. Without the whistleblowers, we would never have had a a Royal Commission and we wouldn't have had, uh, you know, billions of dollars will be paid back in compensation um, in the next few years and it's thanks to whistleblowers. When, when you're dealing with whistleblowers, particularly those who have worked for, for the banks or for other organisations in the financial services sector, how concerned were they about what might happen to them when revealing certain things to you? Uh, they're very nervous. Uh, Right now, they're incredibly nervous. So in, in one of the chapters in the book is a, a, a new whistleblower that had come forward uh, before the final report into the Royal Commission had come out who was feeling really uh, disenchanted by the terms of reference, didn't include auditors and the conflicts and the cosiness with the banks. And so I got sent a, a lot of documents. And then when we had uh, the ATO whistleblower, Richard Boyle, getting charged with the equivalent of 161 years, that really created a lot of panic. And then you had, you know, the raids by two news organisations, News Limited and also at the ABC. Yeah, it's really caused a chilling effect out there. And, I mean, right at the beginning when you write about um, uh, John Wacker-Williams and um, the the national senator who is a strong voice um, and was for calling out, you know, sort of for sunlight to rain down on banking practice. He's someone you admire and also who emailed 900 pages of evidence to you and linked you with a whistleblower. Maybe tell us that story. Tell us where... Because that's kind of where you start to with this a couple of decades ago. Yeah, that's right. This is the... So the, the story with John Williams was... 2013 he left a message for me to say give me a call a cba whistleblower has contacted me and it sounds big so i rang him up and he said contact jeff morris who is now probably the most famous whistleblower in the country and jeff at the time was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder his um his wife and kids had left him because he'd become a whistleblower inside the bank but he hadn't spoken up publicly. And um, I went through all the documents and I just couldn't believe it. And that's really where it began. The story was written June 1, 2013. And I woke up in the morning, it was the front page of the News of the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and my email was just going bing, 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 with people just saying, me too, me too. They thought they were the only one. And I think that had a really amazing impact that story because you had people 
coming forward saying, I got ripped off by a dodgy financial planner. So a lot of people then came forward. And I think Jeff's strength as a whistleblower then inspired many others to come forward. So then whistleblowers from other banks and financial institutions came forward. So it was quite a phenomenon, really. Yeah, and what makes this book so um, visceral, really, and, and um, engaging to read is that human stories are really at the heart of it. You detail the incredible um, and disastrous impact that these improper lending practices and behaviour by the banks had on people's private lives. What were some of the most concerning or distressing stories that you have heard? Oh, so one of them was, uh, it was a man called Noel Stevens, who was a scaffolder, and uh, he got a call from the bank, CBA bank teller, to say, come into the bank. He thought that they wanted to give him some advice because it was the trusted bank. So he goes in and they have a look at his um, bank account. See, he's only got $10,000 in it, doesn't own a house, doesn't own anything. So the only thing he really has is a life insurance policy with Westpac. So they get convince him to transfer it to Commonwealth Bank's life insurance a few months later, he gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I'll just go back a step. The reason they actually transferred him was they got a bonus from that. The bank teller got a kickback and the financial planner got a kickback for putting him into this policy. He gets pancreatic cancer, so he's got a few months to live, lodges his claim, which he would have always got with Westpac because he'd been with it for a number of years, and he got knocked back. And he was absolutely devastated. So he spent six, the last six months of his life fighting the bank. He found a lawyer who would back him. And it, it went to court. And the court had to come to his caravan. And he's on morphine, high, because he's in so much pain. And the bank is just relentlessly going after him. And then just before he dies, he wins the case. His daughter is preparing for the funeral. And the bank appeals it. And it was over 200 and odd thousand dollars. They ended up spending hundreds of thousands of dollars fighting the case. It was, it was absolutely appalling. Yeah, and, and I gather from, from reading the many cases um, that some are similar to this, some are quite different, but that this isn't an isolated incident. This is indicative of, I guess, a culture within banks to engage in this sort of behaviour. Yeah, it's, it's really the logo, de- delay, deny, litigate. And we've come to expect it, unfortunately, but uh, you uh, it wasn't always that way and bank managers used to be trusted. I remember even when I was a kid, um, people trusted the local bank manager and, and knew who they were, actually. And But you see the issues with um, bad banking rooted in the sort of Hawke-Keating years and the deregulation of the banking sector and... Uh, you know, the selling of the Commonwealth Bank. And can you sort of take us back and explain those connections? Because they weren't always there when we heard, you know, reporting from the Royal Commission how far back this culture change goes. It, you're absolutely right. It does go back. So I spent a lot of time looking at this era. We had to have deregulation. We had to be part of a global uh, world. But what happened was... <sighs> One of the side effects, what they didn't do, was have really strong regulators. So at the time, there was a regulator who had a budget of something like $5 million and 80 people. So you can imagine when the stock market crashed in 87, and it crashed for a number of reasons, and one of them, the banks got into real trouble because they'd just been spending and lending money to people who couldn't afford to pay it back, bankrolling entrepreneurs like Alan Bond, Christopher Scase, etc. So they, they were really on the edge. And 
you had a regulator that had 80 people and $5 million. So it was just crazy stuff. So the banks were just allowed to get away with murder, and they did. And there were no consequences. And so it just got worse. So the seeds were really set because when you had this deregulation and you had Commonwealth Bank became privatised and it listed on the stock exchange, you had institutional investors who wanted the share price to go up and you started getting bonuses and targets. So the whole staff, it all changed that they started having to uh, go after as many people as they could to put them in products. And if they didn't, they get whacked with a stick. And if they did, they'd get bonuses. Yeah. And you mentioned the regulators there, and I guess the lack of resourcing that would enable them to do their job properly. But there's, I guess, practices that they've engaged in that suggest some of the problems with the regulators goes even deeper than that, or is, is different from that as well. You cite one instance of um, ASIC, uh, one of the regulators amending a press release about irresponsible practices at at the request of, of NAB itself. And that's pretty startling that the regulator, on at the request of the regulated, is changing what their, the nature of their investigation. Yeah, no, that's, ex- that's absolutely right. And that is what happened. So you started off with, you know, regulators that aren't funded properly. And then there are new laws created, but the, it, it's all about buyer beware, which is wrong. So what happened was the organisations which want to make money, they're then putting, they're creating these documents called PDSs, which are so complicated, people don't understand them. But the institution can cover itself by saying, well, it's all in the document, buyer beware. So they're covered. And then the regulators start to become a little bit too chummy with the regulated entities. And yeah, as you're saying, there were draft press releases. So if an entity did the wrong thing, you know, the, the regulator puts out a press release and you read it saying, yep, this is what they've done. What we found with the Royal Commission was the draft press releases would go to the banks. And, you know, in some cases, the, the regulator's saying it's because, hey, we want to make sure it's not inaccurate. So we're sending them the draft press release. But sometimes that translated into, you know, the banks saying, no, you can't say this, we don't like this. In one case, the bank is is being asked, is a $300,000 community benefit okay? And Kenneth Hayne, who was the commissioner, says, hold on a sec, this is breaches, which are equivalent to $2 million a breach. In my estimation, that's about $8 million. So you think, how can a regulator be, you know, saying a community benefit, which is real spin, when it should be something like $8 million? Mm. Uh, Jen Osidell-Ferguson's with us and we're speaking um, about banking bad and of course we can't cover everything in this book because it is um, it's beautifully written by the way and very human and uh, but extensive as well and I wanted to sort of highlight though that one of the, the people within the regulators that stands out in the book throughout really is Alan Fells and he uses I mean under-resourced okay they, they were but he uses the media to kind of shame banks and other institutions. Can you talk about his approach and why why it was different to the, the way that I suppose the regulators were otherwise working? Yeah, that's right. So he was um, he was chairman of the Trade Practices Commission, which then became the ACCC, so the Competition Regulator, and you know it's it was just very different from the corporate regulator and the prudential regulator it didn't have a lot of resources but he was so canny he knew that public shame can be just as powerful as anything and so that's what he did and he did it time and time again you know 
one of his first gigs at the TPC was in 91, 92, and he called a press conference, got every journalist along saying something big is going to go down today. So everyone goes. And then he announces and shames Colonial, saying that it had been putting um, vulnerable people into life insurance policies. And they were eviscerated, and it was really powerful. Mm. I want to get to your thoughts on the Royal Commission, which reported, of course, earlier this year. But I think it's important to understand the context in which the Royal Commission was called in the first place, because it, it came largely off the back of a lot of pressure of which your journalism contributed significantly, as well as the lobbying of people like Wacker Williams as well in Parliament. But it was eventually the banks who called for the Royal Commission, which is kind of an interesting state of affairs. How did it all come about? Yeah, so it was, it was, it, there was a real build-up. So you had the the Commonshaw scandal, which was, you know, where they were delaying and denying claims and there were medical definitions that were a decade out of date that they were still selling policies that people couldn't claim on. That had a big impact. Then you had bank bill swap rate rigging. And then you had the big one, which was Austrac, where Commonwealth Bank had breached, you know, 56,000 breaches of money laundering and counter-terrorism laws, which, you know, was just extraordinary. So there's this real build-up coming and then you've got, you know, the John Wacker Williams who's lobbying. But what really f- finished it was the same-sex marriage bill. That's, that's really what it was about. The nationals were not happy about it, the way it was brought about. You know, some of them are very um, religious, thought it was a really wrong thing to do, as we saw in the paper many times. And so they said, OK, if the Liberal Party can do that then why don't we have a um, public, you know, members bill for banking? Because they've got a lot of farmers who've been complaining about the banks. So it's sort of a tit for tat. Mm. And, it, yeah, they got the numbers and it was just about to go through and the banks realised if this goes through, we don't have control of the terms of reference the coalition doesn't have control of the terms of reference, who's going to be the commissioner, how long the Royal Commission's going to go for. So they ended up writing to Malcolm Turnbull to say, please, basically, we're begging you, can we have a Royal Commission? And, you know, half an hour later, he's, he's in Canberra announcing a reluctant Royal Commission. That's extraordinary. And I mean, did you know that that was happening or was that something that, that sort of became evident later? But at the time, did you went... I can just see what happened there. No, I knew what was happening because yeah. I'd written... I'd do the back page of the Financial Review on a Monday and I'd been talking to Barry O'Sullivan, who was one of those National Party figures who started really pushing for this um, private members' bill. And um, we know, I mean, Commissioner Kenneth Hayne and Rowena Orr, QC, I mean, they became household names through that process. Um, but the Royal Commission itself was limited in time and, and in scope. Do you think that was a mistake? It was a terrible mistake. It was 12 months. It had a budget of $70 million. And uh, the terms of reference, they included superannuation, which was the right thing to do, but it's a $2.8 trillion industry. And to dedicate two weeks to it is just ridiculous. And so that was the problem. You had two weeks on each big topic. So many institutions didn't get a look in. They, They got overlooked and got away with it yeah it was just it was just too time poor and there were over 10,000 submissions and only 27 people got to get on the stand and tell their story part of a royal commission is a it's a cathartic experience 
and most people didn't get that chance. And for a problem that's this significant and this entrenched in the culture of a whole range of institutions, one would think that, you know, a, a multi-year Royal Commission would definitely be warranted. But despite the limited duration and, and scope, there were people who were really embarrassed when on the stand at the Royal Commission, one in particular, the then NAB chairman of the board, Ken Henry. So what has been, I guess, the fallout of the Royal Commission and, and what's your sense of the recommendations that were delivered and what they might achieve? So the fallout was with AMP, for example, which was caught lying to the regulator 20 times. Example, they were saying that the fees for no service was, they were blaming it on bad administration and technology issues, when in fact it was deliberate. They were deliberately charging customers fees for no service to put money in their pockets. So they got caught. So the chair ended up standing down, the CEO stood down, the chief legal officer stood down. So they had a bit of a clean out and half the board ended up going. At NAB, you had the um, chief executive left and the chairman, Ken Henry, who was a very embarrassing experience. He's still there. He's leaving towards the end of the year. But you've had Freedom Insurance, which was direct insurance selling funeral over the phone. That's basically closed down. Mm. So that's happened. I mean, has there been anyone go to jail? Uh, is there a sense that there might be anything criminal coming out of the Royal Commission at all? Well, there were a number of cases and individuals that were referred to the regulators for, you know, to look at for criminal. It didn't name and shame them, which it could have. It had the power to do that, but decided not to. So we don't know. We can guess who they might be. And nothing has eventuated so far. So my feeling is until you see a few heads on sticks, not a lot's going to change. And it's, I mean, there is a sense at the moment of double standards between individuals, perhaps, you know, dealing with Centrelink or whatever, and, and, and those in, in institutions like banks. But I wonder, uh, have consumers, you know, used their power and, and walked from some of the big four? Has there been a a movement of people moving their money and their interests away from some of these banks or not? They've moved to, in terms of superannuation, they've, there's been this big exodus from retail funds, which are largely owned by the banks or AMP, into industry funds, which are non-profit. So that's been billions of dollars that have just flown out the door to the industry funds. In terms of the banks, there hasn't been, because it's an oligopoly and it's where, where do you put your money if they're all sort of as bad as each other? So there hasn't been a lot of movement there. Do you think anything can meaningfully change until banks and financial institutions change the practices of upselling products and, you know, irresponsible lending and the bonuses and, and kickbacks that are received for signing people up to certain deals? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, those things have to change. But also you've got to have regulators doing their job because if they do their job and they start naming and shaming and putting people in jail for essentially stealing, not, not a lot's going to change. Mm. And, and, I mean, you do detail that ASIC and, and APRA have the, the, the kind of twin um, regulators have started to try and strengthen their approach. Is this going to work? Are they going to be able to have the teeth that we need them to have? I really hope so. <laughs> I, <do>. <laughs> <laughs> I love that smile. And I suppose, I, I mean, we've got so many final questions, don't we? I can tell you when I ask a final question too, Dylan. But I wonder, I mean, the whole kind of deregulation of banking was about being internationally competitive and um, the banks being, you know, big and uh, and significant here in Australia. Has that 
played out or are, you know, the problems that we've had here in Australia repeated elsewhere around the world or are we kind of a standout here that we've had such scandals in our banking sector? It's been a global phenomenon. If you think back to the global financial crisis where you had the government had to bail out some banks in the US and in Europe. So, yeah, bad behaviour has gone on. When there's a lot of money and people are, you know reliant on this you know it's the lifeblood of the economy you'll get bad things going on and that's what happened and that's why you need good regulation yeah and i want to ask about your experience in reporting on this over many years because you haven't shied away from tackling the wealthy and influential of course you wrote a book on gina reinhardt and the face legal action that followed and all that sort of stuff but you um write about the issues you faced when reporting on some of these issues with somebody impersonating you for example and trying to tarnish your record um, and also some shyness if that's the right term from some in the media from actually interrogating the banks and, and reporting on what's happening there what's been your experience and I guess what's the role of the media more broadly in shining a light on these types of practices? Well really that's the role of the media is to shine a light on on bad practices you know whether for the state it's so important and there have there had been occasions in the past where some journalists who were looking at these areas were on the side of the banks you know I remember when the Commonwealth Bank financial planning crisis um, scandal happened in 2013 and there were calls for a senate inquiry there were some journalists writing we don't need an inquiry the banks are fine Mm. And what about now that we've had the Royal Commission, it's kind of run its race, is there a concern that this might fade from the headlines and that the banks might be able to kind of, you know, continue in a similar way as they have for many years? Absolutely. That, that is a real concern and that's why everybody, including the public, have to be really vigilant about what's going on and speak up. Mm. And um, speaking of um, speaking up, what about whistleblower protections are you optimistic that we'll get change there to i suppose um make sure that people feel safe coming forward with this information because it doesn't have that feeling at the moment you know in a way i'm a little bit cynical i remember they had a whistleblower inquiry they had a set of recommendations which were terrific where whistleblowers would be rewarded you'd have a separate unit etc etc once they got passed into legislation it was watered down almost unrecognizably and that's the problem sometimes you have these great reports great recommendations and by the time the lobby groups etc get in front of them and that's the thing with whistleblowers there's such a long way to go and people don't like you know in australia we have this cringe factor of being a snitch in america they have a whistle day whistleblower day celebration it's very different in australia well thank you for coming in and all the best with the book it's called uh, banking bad adele ferguson has been our guest uh, she's a multi-award winning journalist you can see her on the telly and you can read her uh, work as well and she's been looking at the financial services and banking sectors for many years and her work really did help pave the way to that recent recent royal commission congratulations and thanks for coming to triple r thank you and uh, MIF is in full swing with its reliably inimitable selection of films, including Buoyancy, the debut feature film from Australian writer-director Rod Rathjen. And 
Buoyancy explores the plight of boys and young men exploited in Southeast Asia's fishing industry, which supplies much of the world's seafood. It's not a documentary, but does raise all sorts of issues about the reality of global supply chains and modern day slavery. We've got Buoyancy Director in the house, as well as supply chain expert Kate Skatang, who will be part of a, d- a panel discussion this Saturday after a screening of the film at MIF. And welcome both Rod and Kate. Thanks for coming in. Thank Thanks very much for having us. And um, congrats on the film. Thank uh, you. Dylan and I both have kind of got a little sneaky peek of it. Um, why did you want to tell the story? Oh, look, it's just a really important subject and something I wasn't aware of that was happening over in Thailand and Southeast Asia. Um, the, f- the fishing industry is so notorious. And, yeah, I just wanted to bring um, these boys and men's stories to the world and um, and their voice to the world, so... Yeah. And when I heard about the um, the subject matter of this film, I kind of had assumed it was a documentary. Um, then when I looked more into it, it was interested to find that it was a fictionalised telling of the experience of people in this slave trade, really, in the fishing industry. Why did you want to tell it as a fictionalised story rather than a documentary? Um, there's actually some great docos on it. There was one that um, played in Berlin with us this year called Ghost Fleet, and... Um, you know, the Guardian and Environmental Justice Foundation, they've all done little kind of small docos around the subject. But for me, it was about trying to engage the audience with, you know, the desperation of wanting to leave, the process of being trafficked and then, you know, being exposed to this brutal world out on the sea. Like, the thing with a lot of those docos is you don't, you don't really get to see the Thai side and, and actually what it's like on the boats. You've got accounts, but so... I just wanted to try and, you know, engage an audience with the kind of psychological and emotional journey and dehumanisation that kind of happens to these guys out in the water. Yeah, dehumanisation is an important word to associate with this film. And I wonder um, how you went about writing and, and casting this film. So, yeah, it was, it was quite an elaborate um, research process. Um, so I interviewed, I'm not sure how many, but, you know... Um, 50 to 60 survivors um, that that had kind of been exposed to this world and their stories and and it's really their voice that's that's kind of behind the narrative and a lot of the things that that kind of happened to to the to them in those stories is is actually what takes place in the film so and casting how did you casting yeah so um sami who's who's our lead boy was was kind of 14 so he He's been brought up in an organisation called Green Gecko in Sam Reap in Cambodia. And, um, yeah, he... So we we went to them and they, they actually, like... They worked they worked on Angelina Jolie's film, um, First They Killed My Father, like as, as kind of stunt, as stunt crew, I guess. And um, so they didn't really want to have anything to do with another film because I think the, the process of making her film was quite hard for them. So um, when we turned up and... They said no, we don't want to. We don't want to do another film. But then once we started telling them what we were making the film about, and um, yeah, and then they started listening, and yeah, finally, and and yeah, just Sami's just an amazing kid. All the kids there are incredible. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a pretty great organisation over there for for former street kids. And a pretty amazing performance by a non actor as as the lead in in a film for the first time. Yeah, yeah, he he really like. I think initially when I was casting the film, I thought I was going to need someone a lot older with a lot more life experience. But, like, over there, 
um, even as a 14-year-old, he brought so much to the to the role already, and he's 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 already lived an amazing life. So, yeah, I was he, he I don't know he's just incredible, incredible mm. kid. Yeah. And so a lot of the story takes place in Thailand, um, but with Khmer crew and and um, and I suppose. Um, men and boys from from different parts of of southeast asia is that also where you actually did the filming in thai thai waters or oh no we we never get permission to make this kind of film in thailand um so we shot it in um cambodia and uh, down on the coast uh just off um Sihanoukville, um off an island called korong samlom um and yeah the the crew was made up of uh, Cambodians, Thais, Aussies, um, and the cast likewise, uh, with Burmese as well. So, uh, yeah. I read that there were people cast in the film who had had direct experience being on these fishing trawlers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the captain of the boat, he actually in in the film, he actually. Uh, worked on a trawler as a kid from from like 11 to 13 years old or something like that so I mean he he brought something really unique and powerful to the to the kind of role and um, the Burmese workers on the boat as well they they actually I mean they had varying degrees of experience but um, anything from kind of like one year to four or five years that 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 worked on the trawlers and really wanted their the reason we wanted to cast um, kind of real people in the film is that we wanted to inf- like we wanted their experience to inform you know what it was actually like out there and I th- I th- hopefully we achieved that mm. and and Kate we've know about sort of uh, abuses in the textiles industry particularly in the wake of um, significant events such as the Rana Plaza cl- collapse in Bangladesh some years ago what do we know about exploitation specifically in the seafood industry in parts of Asia mm. Yeah, so I um, actually I work at the University of Melbourne as well and um, we did a big piece of, of research um, over the last two years looking specifically at the seafood supply chain and the work that we did was to... We interviewed more than 40 different individuals from different organisations throughout the entire supply chain, so starting with um, brands in Australia and retailers in Australia um, and then looking at, at processes and agents um, in Thailand, um, as well as NGOs who work with um, the, the the workers that are that are brought into Thailand to um, to do some of this work, and you know, I guess what we found or what we kind of guess is that that Thailand is almost like an incubator for this kind of thing and the reason is that the conditions within Thailand are that um, that that unemployment is actually really low so Thai nationals have a, a lot of choice available to them in terms of in terms of the type of work that they want to do um, and also um, you know, this type of work, working on fishing boats and in um, processing factories and processing tins of tuna, it's actually really dirty work. So the Thai nationals don't want to do that. And so the processors and the the fishing trawlers have no choice but to look further abroad. Um, And, you know, then it becomes a, a big opportunity for you know, dodgy recruitment agents and, you know, over the border um, who will then some, sometimes legitimately bring in workers and sometimes trick uh, workers. We did hear one story about a guy who fell asleep in a brothel and woke up on a, on a boat. <laughs> 
Um, and so, you know, I guess um, that's that's how we we found that that it that it developed, and um, it became it came to light in 2015 when a um, when a journalist called Robin McDowell, who's won a lot of um, awards for the work that she's done, um, did a, a year-long investigation into the seafood industry. Um, and then her work was published more broadly um, after that. And the um, the EU actually issued a yellow trading card on Thailand as a result to try and force action on the issue and to make you know modifications to laws and practices within Thailand. And I suppose I'd be interested in how that's working, but also this, the scale of... Yeah. I mean, you know, it's how I mean, we're speaking about the film Buoyancy. Uh, it's a fictionalised um, film, feature film, uh, that's screening at MIF, and also um, Kate, who's speaking with us now, is part of a panel discussion about Beyond Buoyancy, International Slavery in Our Seafood. And I suppose it's good, be good to get a sense of how... How, how endemic this is in, in Thailand yeah. and, and the fishing industry there. Well, I think that people, you know, when you go shopping in the supermarket, you have no idea how many of those products actually have been touched by someone who could be called a slave. And it's probably worth even... Um, understanding what slavery really means and you know I guess people think about you know slavery in the US and you know that it's all been abolished but in in terms when we talk about modern slavery we're talking about workers who have their freedom of movement taken away from them and it can be through incarceration or through threats of violence but not necessarily what tends to happen more regularly is that a worker um, who's in a you know a compromised situation in you know remote parts of India or Cambodia um, an agent will come to them and say, you know, if you give me money, um, I'll find you a good job in Thailand or um, China or somewhere like that. And then that worker is then transported across the border. Quite often their identity documents will be taken away from them and then they've got a really big debt that they need to work to pay off and that's what holds them. Um, and you're in particular in this industry, I mean, you can be physically held on a ship and not touch ground for a number of years and that's made possible by boats moving out into international waters and then trawlers will go out and collect the cats, drop off food and come back and the and supply the ship, but the ship actually never touches land. Yeah, that's right. Without revealing too much about the film for those who haven't seen it, but that's essentially what happens to the main character in terms of being duped into working on mm. a fishing trawler. He thinks he's going to work in a factory to earn sort of more money than he can working for his family, but then mm. ends up on this um, trawler in like terrible conditions. Was that experience indicative of, of the stories you heard from speaking to people? Yeah, pre pretty much what Kate was saying then about debt bondage over there is enormous and yeah the trick like they a lot of the guys most of the guys I talked to um, thought they were going to work uh, anything from like a pineapple factory to construction but you know obviously none of them expected they were going out to work in the fishing industry none of them had any experience or um, so yeah they yeah basically um, trafficked and tricked and then before they knew it they were um, out at sea and no idea like there's no way of communicating back home and you spend enough time out there and your family back home wonders if you're still alive like a lot of people we talk to like families they didn't know if they their husbands brothers sons were coming back or what, what had happened to them and yeah so yeah the process of being trafficked and tricked was was common very very common and and people start to go a bit mad on the in those circumstances as well but i wonder i mean the examples of, of cruelty and violence and even murder um mm. that 
play out in in your film, Rod? Um, were they all based on on stories you were told? Yeah, yeah because I, that is just when I sort of was dawning on me. Yeah, <laughs> when I'm yeah. watching the film, I was like, oh my goodness, it's like people are yes dehumanized, but also worthless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it, I thought it was an ext- like initially when I started kind of framing the narrative, I thought, oh is this going to be an extreme version of what happens? And the reality is it doesn't even come close to what it's actually like for a lot of these guys. So, yeah, it's quite confronting. And, um, yeah, surviving these boats is like the guys that survived it are just... Their stories are just unbelievable, unimaginable. Mm. I'm interested too to, to um, take you up on a, a point you were, you were mentioning earlier, Kate, about the you know consumer knowledge about where products come from, where our food comes from, and that sort of thing. In this particular film, it's largely pet food that they're they're catching fish for, if I understand that correctly, from what one of the characters says. Do we know less about pet food and the supply chain of that compared to what we have for human consumption? Yeah, a lot of pressure is put on some of the seafood brands um, to be more transparent with consumers. So we interviewed a brand um, here in Mel- based here in Melbourne and they've made a lot of effort in terms of tracing where their raw material comes from, um, mostly from an environmental perspective um, because they started on that. So the awareness about that started sooner and now the social element's starting to emerge. And, you know, we asked them in the interview, why have you... Um, put so much work into transparency and um, and looking at the environmental issues in your supply chain when some of your competitors haven't. And they said, well, it's quite simple, really. Greenpeace chained themselves to the roof and wouldn't come down <laughs> until we signed an agreement to say that we would that we would do it. Mm. Um, so really, just through um, pressure from some of the NGOs. Um, and through, you know, I guess exposure, um, you know, there's been a push to um, to, to increase you know, transparency and people have got a lot more of a connection to the food that they're putting into their own mouths and maybe not as much when you consider pet food, but the supply chain is the same because they use the entire fish. We get the good stuff and then your cat gets the rest. Mm. Um, so it's the same supply chain and the issues, um, the issues you know, are are the same um and it's a real it's a really challenging thing for consumers because if you walk into i did it as an exercise one day with my other the other researcher i work with we walked into woolworths and we looked at all of the um the tuna cans on the shelf and every single one of them had some sort of a marking on it that said responsibly sourced or ethically sourced dolphin safe or something (laughs) yeah dolphin safe that one's the, the you know and what we'd call that greenwashing or marketing um, in a lot of ways. You know, the only way to really determine if it's an ethical product is if it has an independent certification. In this industry, it's called MSC or Marine Stewardship Council. But but even that is um, environmentally focused and not socially focused. So um, here in Australia, we we, we di- have just passed legislation, you might be aware, in, the, in um, just at the end of last year, the modern slavery legislation, which forces not just seafood producers, but all organisations who have a turnover of more than $100 million um, to uh, make an annual report on or statement on what they're doing to re- to identify and eliminate modern slavery in their supply chains and that is a big game changer i mean it's it doesn't have as much teeth in it as we would have liked but um 
it what it does is it creates a level playing field. So when I talk about that brand before that made some changes because Greenpe- Greenpeace lobbied them, um, this now creates a level playing field and a, and a level expectation for brands, you know, even broader than just seafood. Is, is that just for Australia, though? Is that the it's, only it's country for, that could It's be? for organisations in Australia, mm. um, but it's modelled largely on legislation that was put in place in the UK in mm. 2015. Yeah. And I mean, hearing that and, and with the experiences, Rod, of, of interviewing people for your film and in the making of the film, uh, are you getting, you know, are you hopeful that these sorts of, of changes might bring about a, a change in circumstances for the men and boys that you've I hope so. Like the whole, the whole goal for making the film was to try and kind of provoke some political will or inspire some kind of change. I mean, even if our film... Um, only works on a level back in Cambodia where we plan to take it around to kind of those more kind of vulnerable villages and communities and try and educate because there's there's not there's not a hell of a lot of education in those more kind of vulnerable areas so um, even if it only works on that level and can help prevent it in the future then I mean it's a really like the the film's quite a simple narrative but like the, it's such a social, cultural, economic, economically kind of complicated issue over there, and um, the solutions, you know, it's got to it's got to come from, you know, it's got to come from the kind of yeah the the top you know yeah, politically I mean, based like it's for actual change I think that's where it's got to start. Well, I think so, but also I mean I did draw from the film the sense that uh, well certainly the the main character probably would have well would have been better staying where it was yeah. and not naively yeah. kind of thinking that where all those cars and bikes mm. are going is where he needs to go to and he wants to sort of see where they're all going or whatever yeah. um yeah and i think that you know uh, again it's hard to talk about a film without give, you know giving away some points but this idea he, he and a friend we're going to take this journey mm. and the decisions they make at a really critical point really sets their future yeah the i mean pretty much all the guys that I interviewed regretted going, you know, like they, they even, you know, even though they didn't, they weren't wealthy or had, were living under great conditions in Cambodia, they still regretted, you know, going to Thailand because of the level of exploitation they experienced. So yeah, unfortunately it's, it's, you know, not, not a great scenario for them, but, um, yeah. And this is your debut feature and it was awarded a prize at Berlin International Film Festival earlier this year, I understand, which big yeah. congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, do you have an eye for your next project yet? Are you kind of riding the wave of getting this one out there as much as possible? Um, yeah, I do, but I can't really, like, talk too much. Like, it's, like, just so, <laughs> like, it's so early in the process and films can kind of fall over in a second. So it's like, it feels kind of pointless talking about yeah. it. But, um, but yeah, working on a couple of things and, um, yeah, just, just like um, at the moment, just obviously enjoying, you know, talking about buoyancy and bringing, bringing the voices of these boys and men to the world. So, yeah. 
Well, thanks, uh, Rod. Rod Rathjen is director and writer of Buoyancy. It's screening at MIF, and we've been also speaking with supply chain expert Kate Skatang, who will be um, part of a panel discussion after the film when it screens this coming Saturday, and the, the panel discussion will be Beyond Buoyancy, International Slavery and Our Seafood. It looks like it's going to be an amazing uh, afternoon over there at MIF, but it's also screening a few other times. Yeah, this Friday at the Capitol, Monday, August 12th at Kino and Thursday the 15th of August at Hoyt. So check out the MIF website um, if you want to head along to one of those. Thanks both for coming in. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for us. having us. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.